0: Come sing, pray, write new music, share testimonies and resources, and grow together with like-minded worship leaders from across the world. Go to lliw.net to register. Lily Baltrip was a good bus driver. A very good bus driver. In fact, according to the Fort Worth Star-Telegram of June 1988, some years ago now, Lily Baltrip had been voted by the Houston Independent School District as an awardee in their very good bus driver program. She was a good driver. Thus it was that colleagues of hers were happy to ride with her when they drove to the ceremony where Lily would be awarded her certificate and prize in front of her colleagues and friends. She was a good bus driver. Unfortunately, on the way to the event... She took a corner a bit too sharply, and the bus rolled over, sending her and 16 of her colleagues to a local emergency department. Now, the question is, what do you do next? Do you still give her the award for very good bus driver? Well, the awarding committee was clear. No, you don't get the award. You blew it. This is an award that you receive based on merit. Kind of a rough thing, isn't it? But right there, Lily came face to face with the way life works. You know the way life works. What goes around comes around. Nice guys finish last. The victor, the victor, go the spoils. You know those realities. Maybe summarized in that bumper sticker you may have seen around town that says, my karma just ran over your dogma. <laughs> It'll catch up with you. So nothing in life is for free, they say. Certainly nothing good in life is for free. Well, if that's true, and the indications are that it is very true, then that was the lesson learned by a man named Martin Luther. Martin Luther had learned that things don't come for free, and he was doing the very best that he could to earn that good bus driver award from God. When I say he was doing the best that he could, that's exactly what I mean. I want to read some words to you from a piece that appeared in Christianity today describing that through which Luther passed in his efforts to earn the approval of God. Here's what it says. Luther was extraordinarily successful as a monk. He plunged into prayer, fasting, and ascetic practices, going without sleep, enduring bone-chilling cold without a blanket, and flagellating himself, that is, whipping himself. As he later commented, if anyone could have earned heaven by the life of a monk, it was I. But though he sought by these means to love God fully, he found no consolation. He was increasingly terrified of the wrath of God. This is a quote from him. When it is touched by this passing inundation of the eternal, the soul, in other words, when God comes near, the soul feels and drinks nothing but eternal punishment. When God comes near, all I fear is punishment. He goes on. The quote goes on, during his early years, whenever Luther read what would become the famous Reformation text, Romans 1.17, his eyes were drawn not to the word faith, but to the word righteous. Who, after all, could live by faith but those who were already righteous? The text was clear on the matter, the righteous shall live by faith. Luther remarked, I hated that word. The righteousness of God, by which I had been taught, according to the custom and use of all teachers, that God is righteous and punishes the unrighteous sinner. The young Luther could not live by faith because he was not righteous, and he knew it. Try as he might, he was certain that the committee would say, remove the award. You roll the bus, you're out of the game. How ironic is it then, supreme irony in fact, that the very text that he hated would ultimately become a text that revealed to him the grace of God. In fact, not only would it do that for him, it would become one of the central, if not the central passage of the Reformation. So I want to go to that text, it's in Romans 1, Romans chapter 1, and I want to read what Luther first found abhorrent and later found profoundly comforting. But before we read the passage, just a bit about what leads up to the passage. It's right near the beginning of the epistle to the Romans. Paul introduces that epistle by talking about his call to be an apostle, not by the will of human beings, but by the will of God. He goes on to talk about his desire to go and to visit those who lived in Rome. In fact, he says, I have longed to come and see you long before now, but have been prevented from doing so. I want to come to you, though, now, he says, because I want to be mutually edified. You will be able to bless me. I will be able to bless you. But in the intervening time, just know that I am praying for you every day, all the time. You're in my heart. You're in my prayers. And it's right about at that point that he writes what is essentially the thesis statement of this epistle, this, this magnum opus of the apostles on the gospel. It's those two verses read so well as our scripture passage this morning Romans 1, verses 16 and 17, page 1672 in your Pew Bible. So listen what Paul writes I am not ashamed of the gospel early on by making this statement. And at the beginning of this statement, he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Some translators say that could actually be translated, I am proud of the gospel. Now, if you put yourself into the context of Paul's world, that's a stunning statement. If you understand a bit about the background of his day and how the secular mind viewed the gospel of Jesus Christ, the crucifixion of Jesus the Nazarene, then you're surprised that Luther is able to say, I am not ashamed of it. I want to read you two quotes from two New Testament scholars that fill in some of that background for us. So the first one, C. Marvin Pate, New Testament scholar, writes this, Paul declares that he is not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation. Such a bold assertion by the apostle came in the face of Rome's execution of Jesus by way of crucifixion. Indeed, the cross of Christ had already become a laughingstock in the Greco-Roman world. Not long after Paul, graffiti was found in Rome mocking the cross of Christ. A drawing on a plaster wall near the Circus Maximus depicts a man worshiping the crucified Christ who is portrayed as a donkey on the cross. The implication of the drawing is obvious. To worship a crucified king is asinine. That's the context of Paul's world. No wonder he will say in another place, to preach this gospel of the crucifixion and resurrection, to preach that is foolishness to the secular mind. And yet here in Romans, he begins by saying, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Second quote, this one from William Barclay, who writes, Paul began by saying that he was proud of the gospel, which it was his privilege to preach. It is amazing to think of the background of that statement. Paul had been imprisoned in Philippi, chased out of Thessalonica, smuggled out of Berea, and laughed at in Athens. And in Corinth, his message was foolishness to the Greeks and a stumbling block to the Jews. Out of that background, he declared that he was proud of the gospel. There was something in the gospel which made Paul triumphantly victorious over all that anyone could do to him. I am not ashamed, he writes, of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now from that opening thesis statement, Paul will do two things over the next two chapters. We have to understand those if we are to understand what this gospel means to him. So the first thing he does following this statement is that he paints a picture of the Gentile world in which he says the Gentile world deserves to be under the condemnation of God. He says that in very strong terms. In fact, I think for most modern-day readers, when you read those words, you have to swallow hard because he pulls no punches. He says the Gentile world is deserving of the condemnation of God. Now it's almost as though Paul realizes that his readers who come from the ancient world of Judaism are hearing these things about the Gentiles and they like what they hear. It's almost as though Paul thinks they're saying, that's right, amen, preach it, keep it real, Paul, come on. They're excited, they're happy. And so Paul, after a period of time, suddenly changes almost in mid-argument, takes his eyes off the Gentiles and now looks toward the Jews. And now he has something secondly to say to the Jewish world. First thing he said was to the Gentile world. Now he's going to speak to the Jewish world. And let me show you how he introduces what he's going to say to the Jewish world. It's in chapter 2 and verse 1. You, therefore, he's writing to his Jewish friends, You, therefore, have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. And now he will spend the next chapter plus making the case that the Jewish world is deserving the condemnation and the judgment of God. So he takes over about three chapters almost to build this case, the Gentile world under God's condemnation, the Jewish world under God's condemnation, till by the end of it you're thinking, well, what in the world? Well, he summarizes what the end of it is. He says, so then there is no difference. Gentile or Jew all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Every one of us regardless of Jew or Gentile, have rolled the bus on the way to the award ceremony. And that's precisely where Luther found himself. That place where he said, no matter what I did, no matter what effort I expended, no matter how hard I worked, no matter, it was always as though the punishment of God was hovering right above my head. There are some here today who live in that place who know what it is to feel like God is angry with you. For whatever reason, parental messages, harsh or stern religious messages, hypersensitive conscience, skewed view of God, whatever the reason might be, There are some here today who can understand Luther who said, no matter how hard I worked, that's where I ended up. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But Luther was persistent. And through the grace and insight of the Holy Spirit, an answer came. Came right out of Romans came right in that section that is talking about the fact that all have sinned and fall short of God's glory. This became the answer. I want to read it. Romans chapter 3, verses 21 to 24. This is what Paul writes. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And listen to this verse. And all are justified freely by His grace. Justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Justified, in other words, made right with God. Placed in a right relationship with God. And that happens freely. Why? Because of His grace. I can still remember in seminary, first quarter of seminary, taking a class entitled, Salvation. The basic text for the class was Romans. Our professor was Dr. Ivan Blazen. Coming to class day after day was not like an academic lecture, though it was academically rigorous. It was like a rebirth experience day after day to come to understand the grace of God in a way I have never captured it before. I remember Dr. Blazon coming to this passage and writing on the board, but now, and underlining it and saying, but now, the Christ event has said to us that the righteousness of God is revealed. But now we are no longer under condemnation. But now we can come into his presence with assurance. But now we are made right with God freely. How? By his grace. But now, it's that experience that is available to you today, and it was that experience that came to Luther, a dawning understanding of God's free grace. Luther and his colleagues begin to call it sola gratia, the way it has been referred to ever since One of the key moments, one of the key cardinal doctrines of the Reformation, only by grace. What must it have been for Martin Luther, who grew up in a home with a very stringent, rigid, punishment-minded father? What must it have been for him to catch a glimpse of the grace of God? If we wonder what it was like, we might get a bit of an insight, of all places, at a set of stairs, a set of stairs. Some of us, many, in fact most, from this congregation, but a few friends from other places joined together a couple of months ago and had the amazing privilege of walking in the steps of some of the reformers in certain parts of Europe of being able to go and see where some of these realities unfolded. It was a marvelous trip. The last stop on the trip was a place called Rome. Now, the journey there had been made enjoyable by the camaraderie of friends. There was one person in particular with whom I had a lot of fun. I want to invite him to the platform this morning, a young man named Wade Spalding. Wade, come on up. Wade, really, you basically grew up in this church. In fact, he and his mom sit right back about there, first service, right? Ever since you were about this big, and now you're this big. Many years. Many years. Wade was a joy to have with us on the trip. In fact, Wade fell in love in Europe. Now, please notice, I did not say he fell in love with Europe. (laughs) That's not what I said. I said Wade fell in love in Europe many times. Uh, He would come to me, and he'd say, Pastor Randy, I'm in love. You see that girl over there? That's who I'm (laughs) going to marry. (laughs) That's who I'm going to marry. Would you do the service? I said, Wade, if you can get her to marry you, I'll perform it right here, right now. Just bring her over. (laughs) Never happened. (laughs) Never happened. They're still waiting, heartbroken all over Europe, Wade. But he also fell in love with cars. There were some beautiful cars. In fact, I want to show you a picture of Wade in one of the cars up on the screen. Wade, what is this car here? That there is a convertible Jaguar X type. Is that more expensive than my Ford Focus? <laughs> How much does your Ford Focus cost? <laughs> um, probably not as much as that car. Yeah. <laughs> you look like you own it there. Wade had a good time in Europe. And then we came to Rome. Now, we got to Rome. That was quite a city, wasn't it? It sure was. A- amazing city. In fact, let me just ask you a general question. What, what did you notice most about the tour as a whole? Uh, There was a lot of churches. (laughs) There were a lot of... You probably never knew you can go to that many churches in your life. Three a day. Three a day. (laughs) Um, Then we came to Rome, and Rome was amazing. Because when we came to Rome, we came to a place called the Scala Sancta, or the Holy Sacred Stairs. Now, a bit of background, a word of background about the stairs was this. It was in the early part of the 4th century that Constantine's mother... St. Helena, moved the stairs, according to Christian tradition, from Jerusalem to Rome. In Jerusalem, they had been the stairs that led up to Pilate's judgment hall, and the belief has been that Jesus moved up and down those stairs more than once on the last night of his life. And so Constantine's mother had those those stairs transported and rebuilt in Rome right next to the church of St. John the Lateran. I want to show you a couple of pictures of the stairs. Uh, Some of you have been there and have seen them, the ornate artwork that surrounds them. The stairs are very hard. Stairs are made out of marble. But it is to this stairway that pilgrims come. Look at the second picture. And they climb the stairs on their knees, one stair at a time, 28 in all. Marble stairs, they were hard. Now, wait. We got there that day and we were watching what happened here. Um, and suddenly I turned around, and there you were on your knees on the stairs. First of all, what did you think when you saw the stairs? Um, I was at awe, this amount of time people put in just to talk to God, going up 28 stairs, one prayer for each. One prayer for each, that's right. But then you made a decision. Suddenly, I turned around, and there you were on your knees on the stairs. What made you decide you wanted to climb the stairs? Well, I thought the whole you know, tour, people were going to go up. So I decided, (laughs) no, I might as well be first. And so I'm on the stairs and I look behind and you guys are already leaving the building. (laughs) Now, mind you, it's very clear that once you're on your knees on the stairs, you may not get up and walk. And so, Wade, what happened? Uh, My legs were wobbly at the end. (laughs) Did you go up all 28? I might have skipped a few. (laughs) (laughs) But you got to the top. Out to the top. Now, I have to tell you, Wade, when we got back to the bus, got on, I was already on the bus, and you came in a bit later, and you sat down kind of across from me, and I noticed you were fairly quiet that time. What was going through your mind then? Just like I said earlier, just how people in the city, you know, always, you know doing different religious beliefs and thinking they have to do it to become saved just, you know, kind of struck me like, wow, people actually, you know, take this to heart. Wow. How were your knees? They were really hurt. Were they? Yeah. I want to ask you the key question, Wade, and that's this. Let's suppose that you believed that in order to receive the mercy and the grace of God, that you had to do that, not just once as you did that day, and maybe not just every month, but every time you could. How would that affect your understanding of God? Is that something that you would do? I probably would do it for maybe a month straight, and then I'd probably, you know, start maybe not going as much. Yeah. But... Because um, it's a tough be, experience. That would be really tough on me, just, you know, thinking I have to do that every day, that on my conscience. Yeah. Well, we appreciated you, Wade. We appreciated you being with us, and it was interesting to observe and to learn from you at the stairs as well. Thank you so thank much. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Give Wade, thank you for coming up here. Now, the experience Wade had, if we believe the history that has been written, was not significantly different from the experience of Luther. Luther is said to have come to Rome and to have made his way up the Scala Santa on his knees. And as Pastor Miguel shared last week, to come to the top of those stairs and to walk away asking himself the question does that make any difference? Does that matter? Is this all just a hoax? As he wrestled with and he struggled with what that meant and what it was like. But as he continued to live and as as he continued to study, as he continued to pray, the Holy Spirit, active in his life, gave him that light, that dawning light that would erupt in the Reformation into sola gratia. It is by grace alone. I want to read you two quick quotes. One from C. Stephen Evans just giving us the definition of sola gratia. Here's what he says. Sola gratia is Latin for grace alone. This phrase refers to the Reformation conviction that salvation is by God's grace alone and that even saving faith is due to the gracious activity of God and cannot be viewed as meritorious or deserving human achievement. In other words, what it means is we receive salvation by grace alone, but even the faith by which we receive salvation is itself a gift of grace. Sola gratia. So how did it affect Luther? What was it like when he understood that concept? Listen to his words. At last, he says, meditating day and night by the mercy of God, I began to understand that the righteousness of God is that through which the righteous live by a gift of God, namely by faith. Here I felt as if I were entirely born again and had entered paradise itself through the gates that had been flung open. In other words, says Luther, when I understood it, when I understood that it was a gift of God against all that background of my attempts, it was as though heaven itself had been thrown open and I walked in through the gates of paradise. That was his experience. But when you pause to think about it, isn't that the way grace always is? Every time we are given the gift of grace, doesn't it open the door to new life, to new opportunities, to new hope? That's grace. It was back in the early 90s. The Buffalo Bills, the National Football League team, went to the Super Bowl four consecutive times. A feat that has not been paralleled by any other NFL team. Sadly, sadly for the fans in Buffalo, they lost all four times. It's crushing for the city. But it was that first loss that was especially bitter because that first loss was one they could have won. In fact, with eight seconds left on the clock, eight of the clock the game would be over they had the ball they had the opportunity to score they were down by one point score a field goal, win miss the field goal, lose for those of you who may not be aficionados of football it was a 47 yard field goal attempt which is not automatic but is made most of the time by kickers 47 yard attempt onto the field trotted Scott Norwood the Buffalo Bills kicker Norwood and his team lined up there was the snap of the ball the hold by the holder the kick by Scott Norwood and then the words that most sports fans remember from Al Michaels missed wide right And sure enough, that ball had just edged out of the right trajectory, hadn't missed by much, just wide right. And they lost the game. Now you say, it's just a game? Come on. It's true. It's just a game with a few billion people watching. (laughs) Thus it is that 20 years later, 20 years later, in an interview some years ago, here is how Scott Norwood would describe his current feelings as he reflects on that missed field goal. He says, when asked, how do you feel about it today? He says, sorrow, I guess, and disappointment in letting down the teammates that are there on the field of battle with you. I get choked up thinking about it, putting myself back in that situation must have been a very tough walk back to the sidelines, an even tougher ride home back to Buffalo. But when the team arrived back in Buffalo, there was something unexpected. They came back home having just lost the Super Bowl to discover there were 30,000 cheering fans waiting for them. 30,000 fans cheering the top of their lungs for their team. You're our team. And then something even more surprising happened. The team gathered together up above where Norwood was trying to stay in the background and not be seen. A chant started. And it picked up force and volume. It became a unified chant. We want Scott we want Scott. We want Scott. And suddenly there he was, pushed to the front where everybody could see him. Here's how he himself described the scene. We got back to town, he said, and I did not know what to expect. What I really wanted to do was just remain behind the scenes. But there was a chant That intensified. I was not expecting to be called to the front like that. I had to speak off the top of my mind and real quick, I think in a sense, that's when the truest feelings arise. If you watch the ESPN documentary, you will see Scott Norwood standing with Mike in his hand and saying to the people of Buffalo, I have never felt as loved as I do right now. He might as well have said, I flipped the bus on the way to the ceremony and you're here chanting, we want Scott. Not only that, but others on the team Made excuses for him. Kenneth Davis, a running back, said, I think what really happened is that Apache helicopter that was hovering over the stadium blew the ball to the side. wasn't Scott's fault. <laughs> Bruce DeHaven, the special teams coach, shortly thereafter named his adopted son Scott. It's just a game. I don't know what you call that. But the Reformers had a term for that. The term was sola gratia. That may be where you are today. Blown it, wide right, missed it, failed, roll the bus. What does something written 2,000 years ago and understood 500 years ago have to do with my life here today? I'll tell you what it has to do with you. It's as though we have Paul and his apostle colleagues and the people of Buffalo and up here toward the front, Martin Luther and others, and they're saying, God wants you. God wants you. God wants you. Suddenly you're pushed to the front. You have no idea what to say when... When, when a microphone is thrust into your hand. So you say the only thing you can think of. I've never felt more loved than I do right now. That's grace. Three simple, brief statements that mean much to me. Maybe they will mean something to you. The first one from a woman named Colleen Spencer. Your worst days are never so bad that you are beyond the reach of God's grace. And your best days are never so good that you are beyond the need of God's grace. And then a quote attributed to Martin Luther. People need to hear the gospel every day because they forget it every day. And then finally, a Puritan prayer. I am always going into a far country and returning as a prodigal, and thou art always bringing forth the best robe. That, my friends, is sola gratia, by grace alone, amazing grace.